Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, we welcome Justin Brierley. Uh, Justin is host of the Premier Unbelievable podcast, website premierunbelievable.com, and we're happy to ask people to please check that out. You'll find all kinds of stuff. Justin, first of all, welcome. And also, I, I was just looking at your site, and I think you have other shows now that I wasn't yeah, aware yeah. of. Maybe maybe yeah. you can tell us what all you have going on there. Uh, well, well, firstly, thank you for, for having me here at, at RTB. It's lovely to be back with you guys and, and to, to be able to share a day with you. But um, yeah, we, we've been growing a lot um, over at Premier Unbelievable. So obviously, many people know us for the Unbelievable show, which of course, Ken and various other members of RTB have been on over the years, and we've even done joint conferences and things with you guys, which has been fabulous. Um, but yeah, we've, we've, we've launched a number of other podcasts in the last few years. So for instance, um, one, one of our best known ones, uh, apart from Unbelievable, is the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. So N.T. Wright is quite a well-known Bible scholar across the world now. Um, and I get the privilege of sitting down with him on a regular basis and just firing all kinds of listener questions at him. Uh, and so that's popular, you know, on both sides of the pond. He's he's a very influential thinker and New Testament historian. So that's been fun uh, to develop that. We have a C.S. Lewis podcast, which um, the primary ho- uh, guest on which uh, is is Alistair McGrath, who's a well-known theologian and think Christian thinker and also an authority on C.S. Lewis and his thought and theology. So we have a great time doing regular shows with him, uh, looking at that, as well as other guests who come on to talk about C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, we've, we've kind of um, inherited another podcast, so one that's joined our network uh, fairly recently is called Matters of Life and Death. And that's with quite a, a renowned British bioethicist called Dr. John Wyatt. Uh, and John and his journalist son, Tim, host that. And they tackle all kinds of issues around very much the kind of stuff you guys actually deal with a lot, you know, uh, biology, technology, biotech, um, beginning and end of life issues. So so they have a great podcast um, that we've, you know, just recently brought on board with them. And then the very newest podcast that we've launched recently is called um, Unapologetic. And it's really a, a one-to-one interview show with various Christian thinkers, apologists and evangelists. So um, we featured people recently on it, like John Lennox and others who who come on and tell us about their projects and about, and, and you know, it's just a great way to kind of have a kind of bite-sized interaction on that. And and various other projects, you know, that you'll find on that website, including our, our a big conversation series, which is part of Unbelievable, but it's kind of unbelievable with bells and whistles on. We get some great thinkers across the Christian and atheist spectrum debate the big, really big questions. That's a that's a series we've been doing in partnership with John Templeton Foundation for the last three or four years now. So uh, so we're excited about, yeah, all of the developments and ways in which the, the ministry is growing. Oh, terrific. All right. Well, uh, Ken, I know, I'm sure you're going to ask uh, why Justin is here. <laughs> so maybe we can get that out of the way and go on from there. Yeah, Justin, it's great to see you. Uh, I must tell you that... Uh, I think one of the really exciting things about Unbelievable and your participation in all of these podcasts is you are perceived by both Christians and non-Christians as being fair-minded and uh, careful, and I so appreciate that about you. You've uh, you've done you do a very difficult job very very well. So it's good to see you again. What what brings you to America, by the way? 
Well, really, if I'm honest, uh, family holiday, Ken. So we're, we're over wow. here. The whole family has come out. We love California. So that's why we're in your neck of the woods. And um, it's always helpful when we've got friends here who can help with, you know, we, we've uh, a friend of ours is very kindly helping out with some accommodation. Uh, I, I managed to, you know, book in a few speaking engagements uh, and it, it all kind of, you know, works together quite nicely. So we're, we're enjoying, you know, we're just in at the beginning of a three week break here and we're going to be doing all the kind of touristy stuff, Disney and all that kind of thing. But we're. <laughs> We're, uh, we're enjoying ourselves and, and I get the chance to come and, you know, spend a little time with you guys, which is even better. Well, we're we're happy about that. I have a couple questions and I'm sure Joe and Dave do as well. Um, Justin, I found a comment by Tim Keller very interesting. He said one day you have to want to believe before you can believe. Mm. And I have been reading people like Tom Holland, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray. I've heard some of the interviews that those individuals have done with you. And I find it fascinating. I mean, I read through uh, Dominion by Tom Holland. It was, it was quite a read. It took me a little time to get through that book, but it was fascinating. It seems as if these are secular people who in some sense want to believe Mm. Um, and I, I wonder if you could tell us, I, I know you, you have written a little bit about that. Tell us your perception about people like Holland, Peterson and Murray, where they're coming from and where you see this going. Yeah. Well, well, all three of those names have featured on, on our big conversation seasons, um, in the last few years, Ken. And, and I think the reason is, is because they are these very interesting secular thinkers, essentially, but who are coming to quite interestingly pro-Christian conclusions. In fact, um, I've just submitted a manuscript for a book which really is looking at this whole movement, um, and that, that'll come out next year. But the way in which the conversation, I think, has shifted quite dramatically in recent years, the new atheism, which was obviously all the rage in the mid-2000s with the publication of The God Delusion, and, and in many ways, the, the Unbelievable Show has been responding to that, you know, especially in its early years. I think it's, it's kind of dwindled, really. Um, in many ways, the movement imploded um, because... Once all these big thinkers agreed that God didn't exist, they couldn't then agree on anything else. They all started falling out on, you know, are we pro-social justice or are we just, you know, these free thinkers who just want to do what we want? And they started, you know, disinviting each other from conferences. You know, just recently, Richard Dawkins had his Humanist of the Year award stripped, you know, from him because yeah. other people didn't like what he was saying about trans ideology. So all of these things, it's an interesting time when the, the ground is shifting beneath this kind of secular movement and people are suddenly finding that they um, maybe Christianity wasn't all bad. <laughs> um, maybe actually there were just some things there that do make sense. And especially thinkers, as you've mentioned, like Tom Holland, the British historian who I've had on the show several times now, uh, even as a secular historian, he recognized, he came to realize very powerfully the way in which the Christian story of reality has shaped the West and that everything we hold dear in terms of human rights and values really stem from the Christian revolution. They didn't come from atheism. They didn't come from secularism. In fact, humanism, you know, is really a direct descendant of Christianity in many ways. And so you've got people like him saying, look, um, let's, you know, basically countering the new atheist sort of dogmatic forms of secularism and saying look we really whether you call yourself a christian or not we're all 
Christians in some sense, but just because of the fact that the values we hold in the West are a direct product of, of that culture. Likewise, as, as you mentioned also, Jordan Peterson, obviously massively influential, the psychologist, and um, has garnered this huge following and seems to be scratching an itch among especially a lot of young men searching for meaning, searching for purpose, who seem to have, you know, just been sold short by the secular materialist story and they want more. And, and he seems to be pointing them, interestingly, towards the Bible very often. He, he's often, his lectures and the things he says are, are often full of biblical wisdom pointing back to that now done in a kind of secular psychological way and there's a lot of debate over where exactly he is in terms of Christianity and you know some people think well he's teetering on the edge of maybe becoming a Christian who knows but it's just interesting isn't it that, that that's where the, the 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 dynamism now of the movement seems to be seems to have drifted away from this very anti-god to something that's a lot more kind of oh well actually maybe religion has something to offer and again, Douglas Murray, another good example of that. Um, I had him on last on the show on last year's big conversation series with with Tom Wright, with N.T. Wright. And, and again, uh, you know, the conversations that I'm having in that sense now are very different to the sort of argumentative new atheist versus Christian apologist um, shows. I mean, they we still have those those conversations, but these these are much more congenial kind of conversations between yeah, someone who describes himself. Um, Douglas Murray as a Christian atheist you know he's <laughs> someone who lost his faith what faith he had I think in his early 20s but really feels haunted by the Christian story doesn't want to let it go loves being in churches and cathedrals and you know he loves that that side of it and and he's also keenly aware that atheism does not deliver you morality you know that if you're looking for a moral foundation for society that it's Christianity that gave us that. So, so, so again, someone who, you know, I've asked that question when if I've had him on the show, you know, what would it take Douglas to, to kind of convince <laughs> And, and uh, he said to me, one of the times I asked this, he said, I'd need to hear a voice, he said. Mm. <laughs> and, and that was interesting. It's kind of like, he wants an experience. He wants something that could, because I think he's got questions, particularly around the historicity of scripture, in fact, I said if he'd come back with Tom Wright for another show, we'd maybe debate that. But he's obviously, but he wants it to be true. I think, I think he does actually. I think it's kind of like he he's almost an open book. And if there was, if he had the right reason, then I think, you know, I don't know, of course, of course, you know, there's there's I'm sure lots of things going on in the background with someone like Douglas Murray. But um, yeah, it's just fascinating these conversations, which are so different to those to those you know kinds of conversations that the show really built itself on with those very you know dogmatic atheists who didn't yeah. look like they were going to budge an inch but but even a lot of them have, have started to change i mean you know um i don't know if you're familiar with the the philosopher peter bogosian ken yeah yes so so he's based up in portland and uh, i had him on with um tim mcgrew uh, a christian philosopher several years ago on yeah a and you may remember at the time Peter Bogosian had published this book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. Right. It was very much in the new atheist mold. It was sort of this, uh, this whole thing about here's how to basically dismantle someone's faith and, and all this stuff. Anyway, that was his thing for a while. And, and I had him on. He had a very good discussion, actually. I thought Tim McGrew did a great job opposite Peter Bogosian when I had him on. 
Um, a few years ago, I was coming to Portland to do an event and wanted, was looking for an atheist kind of contributor to, to do something on stage. And so I got in touch with Peter Bogosian and said, Peter, would you be interested in coming back on for this live event? And he said, uh, very graciously, he said, uh, well, I'm going to decline, Justin, um, not because I, I don't enjoy the show and everything, but because I've changed quite a lot from the person that you met uh, a wow. few years ago. Um, he said, and he basically said words to the effect, I don't consider Christians my enemy anymore. In fact, I'm very friendly with a lot of Christians. Um, wow. There's a much bigger enemy that I've now got my <laughs> sights focused on. And just a few months later, what emerged was that he was part of this group of scholars there in Portland who had created all these hoax papers um, uh, that were kind of put into these, you know, academic journals and so on and managed to pass, you know, the, all the tests and everything, but they were complete sort of spoof um, theories. And they were all kind of these very woke um, grievance study kind of pieces. And, and Peter Bogosian and his colleagues, their big concern has been that academia has basically been overtaken by a very specific political progressive ideology, which is actually um, stopping true academic freedom of speech and expression. And so this whole hoax that they pulled off was to kind of highlight the fact that you can basically get away with saying anything you like, as long as you use the right words and the right kind of, you know, theories. Um, and, and so his, his big thing, you know, he, he's, he's not worried. He, he hardly talks about religion anymore. And when he does, it's often in quite, you know, positive terms, ironically. Um, his whole, his, his big worry is about the, this, what he sees as this progressive left, which is kind of, completely running through academia and, and so he very much shares the same kinds of concerns as people like um, uh, Douglas Murray and Jordan Peterson and others so I, it's interesting to see as I say the way that the, the conversation is changing the way some of those characters have you know completely changed their focus they're not they're not bothered about you know taking down religion anymore they don't see that as the enemy so I, I, it's just a very interesting time and i apologize for going on for so long ken but that's that gives you the picture uh, justin i have a, a follow-up question there uh, for lay people like me who are aware of the new atheists and their caustic approach are you saying that um this is a new movement that has emerged or some of the new atheists have transitioned to this uh, mode that you're speaking of or how do we think about that I think it's a sort of a new movement, though there is a bit okay. of overlap. So, for instance, um, it, it's sometimes some of the characters I've mentioned have sometimes come under the banner of that for a while was called the intellectual dark web. Um, this kind of movement of people who wanted to kind of question, you know, political correctness and orthodoxies and, and those sorts of things, but we're still kind of doing it from essentially a secular sort of scientific point of view. Um, and so among that kind of group, um, people like Sam Harris, you know, were quite involved and, and Sam is still, you know, I'm sure anti-religion, but you won't find him really doing much around that these days. He's far more involved in the kind of those culture wars and those, um, you know, and he's got his whole mindfulness thing going on as well. Um, and interestingly, you know, he spends very little time really taking down religion, whereas that was really what he built his career on, you know, 10, 10 12 years ago. So, so it's, it's an interesting one. Um, there, are, there is some overlap, but it's essentially, I think it is a new movement. Um, mm. And by and large, a lot of those aggressive, anti-theistic voices have kind of, you know, they, they still exist and they still have their corners of the internet where they make noise, but they, they don't have the cultural capital that they once had. Um, even Richard Dawkins, who, who I've, got, I've got a great deal of respect for. He's, 
he was on our latest you know um edition of of the big conversation um he's i think he's mellowed you know he's he's sort of he's not kind of out there doing the big debates and book tours you know denouncing religion it just feels like the energy's gone out of that movement and mm. um and and the, and i think even he recognizes that people you know, the conversation's changed and new atheism not that he would claim it was ever a organized movement in the first place but it didn't it didn't really deliver on the whole thing of science will deliver us you know just science and reason-based thinking will deliver us this wonderful utopia that they promised it, it clearly hasn't you know we're, we're in a pretty messed up world um and i think that's why people are returning to ancient wisdom to the bible to the you know the things that these you know interesting new secular thinkers are, are suggesting we should think about and, and turn back to so so yeah that's my that's my sort of where i'm sitting from analysis and and you if you listen to unbelievable you'll see i think the way that the conversations have sort of change tack as mm -hmm. as that cultural conversation has changed along with it mm -hmm. so what would you recommend as a, a book to read that kind of presents some of these new ideas well, i mean maybe your book but but i was going to say you wait till next year and and you'll <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean it's interesting you say that because it is such a relatively new phenomenon i think the books are literally being written about it and, and mine maybe is one of them. Um, I think, I mean, you can obviously read the books of the, the people themselves. Um, and so I think you already mentioned Ken, you know, uh, Dominion by Tom Holland, I think is a, is a prime example of, you know, a very significant piece of work, really pushing back on the secular idea that, you know, all, we owe all our values just to science and reason and so on, and and very much making the case that actually no, that's 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 not the case. A great book I read recently that sort of is Dominion for Dummies almost. That's um, what I'm looking for. Uh, is it's a book by my friend Glenn Scrivener, and it's called The Air We Breathe, and he does a superb job of really showing the way in which the Christian story has shaped Western culture, and. And it really helps to kind of elucidate the way in which um, I suppose what, what the church can do in that. And so his book is probably the closest thing I've read to, to what my book will be when it's published. Um, that's, that's a great, great place to start, I'd say. Very good. Justin, I was listening to uh, a podcast uh, that you were the host of and uh, you had Dr. McGrath on talking about C.S. Lewis, and you made a comment that I, I found amazing, and that is that uh, you said that about a half a billion of C.S. Lewis's books are in print. Mm, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, as you know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, so is Joe and Dave. Um, I remember I taking you around his, the kilns in Oxford. Oh, yeah, that was what a wonderful experience. That was, wasn't I it? I enjoyed that so much. Uh, yeah, Michael Ward was there. It was it was glorious. Uh, why do you think uh, why do you think Lewis has had such a big influence? What what is it about him? I mean, I know on social media, I can say certain things. I can put my book up. I put a Lewis quote or a Lewis book up and it just explodes. Mm -hmm. What is it about C.S. Lewis that you think he has had such, such an enduring influence? I, I think, honestly, 
it's the fact that he captured the imagination as well as the intellectual side of Christianity. I mean, I think he appeals to so many audiences. Um, and the fact that he was able to take very big ideas, intellectual ideas, and, and he just had that knack of being able to put them across in such helpful analogies. Um, he was a master, wasn't he, of aphorisms and analogies and so on. And I think uh, he wrote it in a way that was just incredibly accessible, both in his time, but it's, it seems to have stood the test of time. Obviously, you know, you, you get some of the, the language from the 1940s and 50s that, that is, is a little bit you know, different to ours today. But by and large, they stand up incredibly well. Um, and, and so I think that's why, in a sense, his books um, continue to be incredibly popular, continue to be in print. It's also because they're, they, they're almost timeless as well, that the issues they address. I think he was careful not to, in a sense, tie his thinking and theology too much to very specific personalities or issues of the day or the politics of the day, which inevitably move on fairly quickly. But he, he tied it to big picture themes that we still experience today, issues around meaning, atheism, naturalism, um, and so on. And so I think that's why they still just seem so relevant. I, I mean, I can pick up a C.S. Lewis book today and I don't feel, I feel like this all applies, you know, just as yeah. much today as it did when Lewis first wrote it down. So there's something about the way he managed to capture, you know, the spirit of his age, but also, you know, I think he recognised the direction of travel of naturalism, of the, the academy and so on. And so you can read the books today and they're just as much, if not more, relevant to... To, to what's happening and on top of that you've obviously got someone who just had the most brilliant imagination and therefore Narnia sort of is the entry point for a lot of people to C.S. Lewis yeah. and and that I think is why his intellectual work has remained so potent is because um, he's, he's, he's just a household name when it comes to the, the children's fantasy literature and that's been a gateway for so many people I think to discover the, you know the more explicitly Christian apologetic side of his writing, and 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 all the other treasures that you will find, you know, once you start exploring the whole back catalogue of his work. So, uh, yeah, I there's there's still books that I reread and they just hit me afresh, you know, from Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, I bought I bought a couple with me on holiday actually that I want to get through <laughs> while I'm here. So I'm I'm a bit like you, a bit of a fanboy kind of thing. Very you know, good, very in, good. In, in the, my last book and in this one that I've submitted recently plenty of C.S. Lewis quotes myself. He just seems to be able to say things better than I can. So I just use him when I need to. You know. He does. You know, one thing that's meant a lot to me um, is the idea of mere Christianity. That is, that there is this, this, this classical Christianity that is reflected. And I, I find it amazing. I mean, I have Reformed friends who love Lewis. I have Wesleyan friends who love Lewis. I remember Walter Hooper said he had an audience with Pope John Paul. John Paul said he was a C.S. Lewis fan. Yeah. I, I'm amazed. He's almost like a universal Christian voice. He's able to speak to so many different types of Christians. Yeah. And, and it's fair to say, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody, not a single person, who has such universal appeal across the Christian yeah. church as Lewis. Catholic. Orthodox, Protestant, uh, as you say, Reformed, you know, Armenian, you know, there's, it, it feels like, yeah, he, he is read and referenced and admired universally. Um, and I mean, it's interesting, you know, 
I think each generation sort of of Christians discovers C.S. Lewis, don't they? And and yeah. he's, he has he just has this rolling impact. And and what I've really enjoyed seeing are some really excellent um, both biographies. People like Alistair, you know, really unpacking his life in in recent yeah. years, but also some wonderful feature films. So I don't know if you've seen The Most Reluctant Convert. Yes, um, wonderful. Uh, yeah, Max McLean, who um, I was able to to just um, go round Magdalen College with just a few weeks ago, actually, when he was in Oxford for a C.S. Lewis conference, and uh, and I think what they're doing is by bringing Lewis to life in that way um, is is also an excellent way of introducing him to new audiences because I <laughs> I feel like Lewis has been a gift to the church and will continue to be, and and I, I love the fact that there are people kind of doing new, interesting, creative things to to kind of keep keep his thinking and theology flowing through the church you know yeah Justin I also saw the play the great divorce here where I lived mm. and it was a packed house yeah. and in looking around all ages were represented yeah. thus affirming the point you just said earlier yeah. that he's a universal voice for all kinds of people young people are discovering him as well as older people yeah absolutely and and people often say you know who's the next C.S. Lewis well I don't know, in all honesty. I think there are lots of people doing bits of what Lewis did. There are people, you know, doing wonderful apologetics. There are people doing great fantasy literature. There are people doing arts, you know. No one's quite kind of done the whole package in the way that Lewis has at this point, though. And, and that's, that's, that's interesting. And it's not that as though you can, you know, lightning doesn't strike twice, as they say. But um, we, do need, we do need, as apologists, to... To, to, to take a leaf out of Lewis's book there and the way he integrated um, the left and right hemispheres of the brain, the imagination and the intellect, you know, in such a powerful way. And, and I, I think that's, that's when, you know, things really take off when you can do that as, as, a, as an apologist. I was uh, just recently read a book that I hadn't read before of Lewis's, The uh, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. It's not one of his more popular books. Uh, it was published after his death. I was just talking to Ken about it, and the thing that struck me was how personal he is in that book, how open he is about his own weaknesses and failures, and he's not giving uh, people instructions uh, or, or making apologetic arguments. He's just opening his, his own heart uh, and it, it sort of provided a, in a way, a, a convincing argument for why Lewis, I think, really understands what the Christian life and, and faith is all about. Yeah. Not these intellectual arguments, which are extremely important, but it's this personal yeah. encounter with God yeah. that comes across so clearly in that book. I think that I think you've struck on something really important there, actually, Dave. Which is, we are we do have the benefit, in a sense, you know, following Lewis's death of the publication of so many of these very personal correspondences that Walter Hooper and others, you know, collated. And I've got the sort of edited letters of C.S. Lewis, and they're just a fascinating insight into his personal relationships and you know his character. He he obviously also wrote you know his autobiography while he was alive, you know, of his of his mm -hmm. conversion and. And you get a very sense, a real sense that that there was a real honesty and um, an ability to kind of show what the Christian life looks like from the inside, yes. what what it means to be a follower of Christ, and you know, and he did that so well as well, you know, when he 
wrote books like the screw tape letters you know which were very much about helping christians to kind of see and analyze and understand the temptations and the forces on their life and so on and again it's it's one of those things where i i wonder sometimes whether we as writers and apologists sometimes need to do the same we i think we can sometimes present great arguments as lewis did you know in books but we don't always necessarily um open up in the same way that lewis did his his personal sort of sense of of what it means to to be a christian and to follow and to you know develop the virtues and everything else uh, and maybe you know and and i think yeah one of the reasons probably he is so popular is because people feel like they know him in that way you know once especially those who get to know lewis you know and all his writings you you feel like by the time you've reached the end of you know reading a lot of that you you somehow know him as an individual not just the the arguments he made or or, or that sort of thing so yeah there's something very powerful about that i mean one the one thing that i'd say where we get a little bit close to that in the work i do is um this ask anti write anything podcast i do um tom wright who is also a huge cs lewis fan um he he again is one of those people who who has a, a gift very academically gifted but also able to put it across at a layperson's level in a sort of cs lewisy kind of way and um but he's also very pastorally gifted and very often the questions that he's answering on on that podcast he will talk about his own life he'll talk about his own struggles he'll talk about the you know the realities of, of the ups and downs and and i think that really helps people to feel like actually yeah the, these aren't just intellectual spiritual giants you know far off from me that they're, they're, they're christians they're people who, who who have all the normal sorts of frustrations and you know things in their life that they need to work through and, and everything and and i think that actually really helps us to kind of relate to these people then as as not just uh, apologists and thinkers but actually as, as human beings and as fellow christians you know justin i have a question about science faith issues obviously the bread and bread and butter of what we do here at reasons to believe it it, it seems to me correct me if i'm wrong it seems that many British evangelicals, um, uh, I think of people like Tom Wright, Alistair McGrath, they, they are accepting of evolution. They, they would, I guess, be in the camp of evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution. In the United States, th there's a, a pushback. Um, many people think that to adopt uh, an evolutionary view would be inconsistent with kind of biblical inerrancy. Tell me a little bit uh, about the way some of these British thinkers think um, about maybe those two topics of God's use of evolution and the way some people have described um, inerrancy, that that's an American preoccupation. Um, but you know these men and you talk with them. Share some thoughts with us. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to speak for them necessarily because they would do that much better than themselves. But I, I do think you're right there, Ken. I think, um, and I, I just wonder whether it's it's just a factor of the different kind of background, historical background of, of the evangelical church in the UK versus the US. Um, and the fact that for whatever reason in, in, the, in the US, you know, a, um, a certain form of evangelical Christianity arose, I think, in response to a kind of 
progressive, you know, the, the, the liberal kind of the growth of the liberal, you know, um, side of the church in the 1930s and 40s and so on. And, and, and in a way, I think the, um, the push against evolution slightly came from that. Now, there are obviously scientific reasons as well why people would disagree with evolution. And there's, you know, there's still a good number of evangelicals in the UK who I think would be more kind of in, in line with a kind of an RTB kind of approach. I think someone like John Lennox, you know, another yeah. Christian thinker who, who would be, I think, more, more in kind of you guys camp. Um, but having said that, broadly across the evangelical church in the UK, A, it just isn't, it just doesn't come up as much. It just isn't a sort of live issue so much as it appears to be in the US. And B, that yeah, there does just seem to be, even if even with um even with folks who would use the term inerrancy, they they don't necessarily see that as somehow incompatible with an evolutionary view of of science. Yeah. I think that inerrancy is less of a kind of word that tends to get used though in common parlance, even in the UK. Um, in certain circles it would be used, but certainly people like Tom Wright. Alistair McGrath, I think would prefer to use words like authoritative inspired, because yeah. I think they're aware there's a, a certain sort of amount of theological baggage that comes with the term inerrancy. That they wouldn't necessarily be necessarily happy with. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, I, 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 my, my, my sense though is um, again, when I, when I talk to a lot of the folk who are in the science community in the UK um, church leaders, it, it's never been, there's never been a kind of a strong young earth creation movement in the UK. If, if there has been at all, it tends to have been a bit more imported from the US, I'd say. Um, and, and therefore there hasn't been, it's never been presented as a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up in church, you know, I never encountered it. I grew up in a, you know, very quite a sort of charismatic evangelical church background, mm -hmm. but no one ever, said, Justin, here's the way to understand Genesis as six 24-hour days. Yeah. Never encountered it. Um, I, I, I would, whereas I think you'd be, that'd be far less likely in, in a kind of similar kind of evangelical, conservative, charismatic evangelical background in, in the USA. And so I, I never, it, wasn't, it was only really once I started doing Unbelievable that I started to actually and, and engage much more with, with US kind of, centric um christians that the issue kind of bubbled up in the way it did even the new atheism i think was primarily reacting to a u.s based form of young earth creationism a lot of a lot of the the issues were, were there and so it, they had more problems with some forms of american christianity than actually with uk christianity which was quite i think you know, in large part they saw it quite benign it wasn't really a big threat or anything um, and so so it's it's interesting that yeah, I would say that's true of certainly of some of those well-known thinkers that you mentioned there. John Stott, I'm sure, was also pretty open to an evolutionary perspective and so on. Um, that that the, they obviously don't see it as contradicting or um, you know in conflict with the way they understand, especially those opening chapters of Genesis and so on. Um, and uh, and again, most most of the time when they are engaging with those issues, it tends to be in conversation with 
friends across the pond who do take a yeah. different perspective on them. And again, I don't know, I couldn't give you the exact reasons, but it just it just hasn't been a cultural issue in the same way that it has for the church in the US. And 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 so it's it's just a kind of yeah, it's just diff, different ways in which I guess, you know, uh things have things have fallen out in, in our different contexts. Let me ask you about the experience of deconversion. It, um, I've been a Christian a long time, but it, it does seem like I see more, more people, maybe especially on social media, that say they have, uh, rather than having a conversion, they have deconverted. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are about this type of experience. You, you get to interview some very thoughtful non-Christian people. Have you come to, a, and I know they move in both directions, a movement toward Christ and then a movement away. What are, what have you concluded about this phenomenon? Yeah, and, and the label it's often been tagged with in recent years is deconstruction. Um, right, right. This sort of, and that can, that can be quite a wide variety of things that come under that label but it certainly does include people who are these so-called ex-evangelicals or yeah. and so on um it might equally be people who are just kind of moving towards a very progressive form of christianity um from having been in a kind of maybe more evangelical mode before um and i do see it i think um i mean I, the whole time that i've been doing unbelievable i've i've encountered people who have left the church deconverted you know a lot of the a lot of the kind of key atheists and skeptics pushing against religion are often people who kind of, you know, got turned off faith at some point and, and are now kind of, you know, have kind of ministries of their own kind of on the other side, as it were, um, critiquing Christianity. But but so it's not as though it's a, a new thing necessarily, but I think it's 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 just become more obvious and more in our face because of social media, especially. Yeah of the proliferation of podcasts and, and everything else and now everyone who's kind of got a story to tell you know can broadcast it quite widely yeah. and, and it gathers a kind of momentum and a, a kind of a little movement kind of develops around it i think and there's particularly as i'm sure you're aware ken there's been a number of sort of quite high profile people who have sort of come out as deconverts or deconstructed yeah. and so on in recent years there was uh joshua harris um who was the author of i kiss dating goodbye and sort of reject firstly kind of rejected that whole way of looking at purity culture and then yeah. came out and said oh actually i don't think i'm a christian anymore um i, I had a, an interesting show with a couple of shows actually with john steingard who was a christian musician with hawk nelson and then sort of announced he was didn't believe anymore and so there's been a number of these quite high profile stories and having said that i don't think that necessarily it suggests there's a flood of extra people leaving the church it's just that we kind of maybe hear more about it and and there's um and so on um but i would say that it's it's again we talked about the ground changing at the moment and i think there's a it's almost like there's an acceleration and i think social media has been part of this there's been an acceleration of people being willing to change their ideas and their opinions in ways that they wouldn't have before because the movement was much slower but internet and, and technology and social media have kind of created a much more rapid dissipation of new ideas and new movements. So you look at the way LGBT issues have kind of changed almost beyond recognition in a very short space of time over the yeah. last 10, 10 or 15 years. 
um, the kinds of changes that previously took a generation or two, you know, mm -hmm. suddenly happening within a few short years. And I think it's the same with with, you know, when people start to question certain forms of Christianity, it, it kind of gathers this pace. And then um, and, and so I, I would say deconstruction kind of goes hand in hand with the, the move towards um, kind of progressive Christianity, this kind of people who are critiquing the the evangelical church. Uh, or the evangelical church culture and so on and and either kind of moving into a kind of more fuzzy open-ended kind of spirituality or, or or rejecting it altogether now having said all that i've met lots of people who have then reconstructed on the other side of that and for whom asking those questions and going on that journey has been an important part of them actually coming to back to a faith which might not be exactly the same as the one they left but is is a richer deeper kind of more satisfying faith um and a lot of the a lot of the people i meet who are moving away from whatever form of christianity they grew up in it's it's less it's less that there's a kind of intellectual objections to the core beliefs of christianity it's more a rejection of a certain type of church culture that they grew up in that they've found for whatever reason you know toxic or un you know they just didn't feel actually delivered on what it promised and, and everything else and so I, I see a lot of people, uh, and, and frankly, you know, I think a, a lot of younger Christians have been turned off by the politicization of certain parts of American church culture and everything else. And all of that, I think, feeds into this deconstruction movement. And often what they're rejecting is not necessarily the core tenets of Christianity, but it is a certain form of church culture uh, that exists, especially in the US. Um, so 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 it's a bit of a mixed bag it's it's mm -hmm. kind of lots of different i think factors that are going into it and uh you know as, as i've said before I, I don't think people are any less religious in a funny way they still get very religious about certain things you know about social justice issues and those sorts of things you know people still have a very kind of things find things sacred but they've a lot of people now i think are kind of getting turned off kind of institutional religion and saying well, i just want to kind of you know have my you know spiritual but not religious kind of thing over here um and we'll see we'll see where that goes but um i think the church inevitably is having to to encounter that it's, it's happening very rapidly and the church isn't known for always <laughs> turning on a dime to kind of meet these new trends and things but i am meeting a lot of a lot of pastors especially who are finding a lot of those people in their congregations millennials who are questioning you know the traditional orthodoxies and things and, and they're trying to work out how do i create the kind of church that that doesn't sort of simply look like the culture look, you know have this kind of um that is neither just pandering to you know the latest ideologies um but is but nor is just some kind of american evangelical subculture that kind of exists in its own bubble but where it it truly is bringing them jesus and the kingdom of god historic orthodox christianity and showing that there is this is you know a life-giving way of, of 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 being a christian um and, the, and it's in a way it's an exciting place to be but it's it's a very challenging one because um it, it you can't always rely on the things that used to work if you like in yeah. churches and that used to bring people in um i even question in all honesty you know how much longer the kind of mega church model that has been so successful in many ways in the US, whether, you know, whether that's 
that's the long term thing because I think a lot of the younger a younger generation are kind of moving away from that way of engaging with spirituality. Um, they they want something that's a lot more intimate and communal and uh, you know sitting around a table and uh, you know so 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 it, it'll be interesting to see how 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 this kind of changes the dynamics of the way that that churches do what they do to try and you know engage people in their in their areas. Very good. Well, let me ask you one more question before our time gets away from us. Um, kind of circling back here a little bit to what you've said. Um, Justin, I, in my last book, I kind of going back to the Tim Keller quote, I thought, I wonder if as apologists, we not only need to make a rational case for Christianity, but that maybe we need to remind people why it would be good if Christianity were true. That is, to talk a little bit about the good elements. And I, I think of Tom Holland, you know, here is a specialist on Roman history. And in the end, he says, I found that I'm not Greek or Roman in my ethics, I'm Christian in my ethics. Um, do you think we've done enough? Um, I think of the classical prism of truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, have we done enough to maybe show the diversity of Christianity? Uh, Lewis certainly and and you note um, a good part of his success is he hits people in so many different directions. Mm -hmm. I, but I, I think, for example, do we talk enough about beauty and the argument for beauty? We live at a time where people question truth and goodness, but most of the secular people I know, they have a deep dedication to beauty. Some of your thoughts about those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I throw in one related comment. You, at the beginning, had quoted Ken, uh, Tim Keller, that you want to, that maybe people need to want to believe that Christianity is true. But th that kind of a statement causes real heartburn in the context of talking to atheists, because, of course, I would argue that they want to believe in atheism <clears throat> because it somehow is attractive to them. And they, of course, accuse me of wanting to believe in Christianity. <clears throat> and that, that isn't really getting at the core of whether it's true or false. So I'd like you to mm. sort of include that in any comment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think it's true, you know, at a purely logical level, you know, we should, in theory, be these people who are only persuaded by <laughs> reason and evidence, you know. And that's often been the mantra of the new atheists, of course, you know, show me the evidence and, you know, then I'll be believe. Of course, the reality is we are not simply evidence machines. Uh, we all have our biases. We, we're, we're a big mixture of psychology and personal influences and background, as well as the reasoning and rational part of our brain. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I, I had a fascinating um, in discussion that I set up um, with, um, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who's a, if you haven't come across him, it's well worth reading, um, a, a book that he wrote, very influential book called The Master and His Emissary, about the way that the left and right hemispheres of the brain um, sort of not only influence psychology, you know, and you've got your, your yeah. classic sort of left versus right thinkers and artists and scientists and all that sort of stuff, but the way in which left and right thinking has actually influenced the whole of culture, whole of Western culture. And and his his thesis really is that um, the, the, the 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 part of the brain that that 
kind of should just be doing the calculation, you know, and uh, the, the reasoning bit uh, in service to the right hemisphere, which is the, the imaginative sort of holistic part of our thing, the way we put things together, that that's changed, that's flipped over. And now we live in a culture which is very left-brained in the sense that it's all about just picking everything apart. That's where scientific naturalism really has come from, that we can explain everything just by boiling it down to its constituent parts. And what McGillchrist and others I think are saying at the moment is we need to, to shift away from that because actually people, that's not the way people live holistic lives. That's not the way people, actually that's not even a, a fully descriptive of, of reason. Um, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a popular delusion that reason is just basically looking at the constituent physical elements of reality and saying, now I understand it. Mm. When in fact, reason is a much broader thing, which involves intuition and involves beauty and imagination and the way we put everything together. And to, to that extent, I think we do need to be, be wary, especially in apologetics of saying, it's just about presenting a logical argument and then people have to follow the evidence. No, there's a whole other raft of things that lead people towards adopting and engaging with something. So, yeah, I mean, I want Christianity to be true. I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that um, because it's beautiful. I mean, I can't think of a more compelling, beautiful story of reality. So I'm, I'm biased, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, uh, you know, and none of us can claim to be unbiased, you know, purely sort of neutral observers. We're, we're sort of invested in, in a particular way of looking at realities. And, you know, you see this in the scientific world as well, you know, scientists who uh, doggedly hold on to their particular pet theory until the very last moment when they can't possibly hold on to it any longer. And it has to be, you know, a, a paradigm shift happens and, you know, um, Einsteinian, you know, mechanics take over from Newtonian mechanics or whatever it is. There's a sort of, there's a, we, you know, we're not simply logical creatures. We, we, we see a beauty in something. We see, um, you know, we, we want to hold on to things. And, and I think it's, it's true, as you say, Ken, in, in Christianity, we, um, we need to uh, show people why they would want it to be true, not just that it is true. Um, you know, there's, there's that thing, they say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think it's the same with apologetics. You can, you can show everyone the reasons why Christianity, they should, you know, is true. But if you're not thirsty for it, you, mm. you're not gonna actually go and actually drink from the fountain. Um, it, and that's where you do need that kind of C.S. Lewis sort of ability to, to, to spark something. So, you know, Narnia was basically Lewis's way of showing what what Christianity could look like in this completely different context and culture. And I think what he did, both in children and adults actually, was he made them fall in love with the heroism, the beauty, the adventure, um, the, the majesty and of, of this Aslan figure. And people wanted to believe in that, you know? And then of course, in the books, he says to the children, you must learn to know me by another name in your world. And the point was that he was he was saying everything that you want to be true about this world, which actually isn't real. It is a kind of an invention by C.S. Lewis. It is actually real in your world. 
there's a there's a sense in which the things you want to be true about Narnia have been made true. And this was kind of Lewis's whole thing, you know, with his own conversion, wasn't it? When he had that famous conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien and saying, you know, my imagination is engaged by the stories of the, the, the pagan gods and the, the poetry and the and the literature. That whole world, he said, is what sets my heart on fire. Whereas when he was in his atheist phase, he said, you know, he just found atheism, naturalism, a completely dull, frigid, boring kind of philosophy. And it was the it was the stuff that was not true, you know, that, that really engaged him. You know, the, his imagination was fired by these Norse legends and these, you know. And then when Tolkien, you know, said to him, look, what if the, there is one myth that was true? that, there, that okay. all of these myths were pointing towards this what what if that you know and that was a kind of light bulb moment for Lewis and 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 it sort of he realized all of that imaginative beauty and the things that I really want most engage my soul they've actually been become true in one person in Jesus Christ and, and he becomes this bridge between in Lewis's intellect and the beauty and imagination and and for me, that's 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 the challenge. It, it is finding that ability that Lewis had to make people want it to be true, and then apologetics comes in and shows them why it's true. Okay, and that that can be great. It removes some of the roadblocks, you know. Maybe someone, but you've got to kind of the way I've often put it is is apologetics is a bit like <clears throat> inviting someone to walk down a road. And at the end of the road, there's Jesus waiting for them, and what you can do. Uh, with apologetics very often rather than it's not going to force them to walk down the road but it can remove some of the roadblocks you know well what about suffering well maybe think about it this way we can remove well can i trust the bible well hey here's some great reasons why actually remove another roadblock it clears the way for people to then walk down the road but they want to they'll only walk down the road if they want what's on offer at the end it's not going to force them to take that journey so it's only it's only doing half the work it's doing it's doing the road clearing work but you've got a it's something else and it's going to be something to do with the imagination and the beauty of christianity that actually makes them want to walk down and and meet jesus at the end of that road so so for me that's that's yeah a really important part of part of the puzzle ken well well justin what a what a privilege to have you with us today i hope your time in the united states is uh fun and helpful for you and your family. And I want to tell you, I listen to your, your interviews and your programs. And again, your fair-mindedness really stands out. I appreciate it. So quite an honor to have you with us today. Ken, it's an absolute delight to be with you. And I hope we can do it again. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. All right. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle, at RTB underscore K samples. And uh, some of you have been uh, commenting on Ken's blog, if, in case you are not aware of it, Ken writes a blog every couple of weeks, reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com, and you can leave comments there as well. It's been a privilege to have Justin on with us. Uh, here's the website again, premierunbelievable.com. Check it out and you'll be there a while as I was uh, just prior to the podcast enjoying all the resources there. Hey, right, that's, uh, let yeah. me put in a plug too for Justin's previous book called Unbelievable. Uh, great book. Go. I've given it out tens of times, more than 10, probably 50 to 
80 times. To wow. Well, I need yeah. to employ you as my publicist here in the UK, Dave, by the sounds of it. <laughs> a great book, really, is a, an excellent book for people who are, uh, well, I give it to like doctors and different people that I visit uh, or talk to. It's been, been a real uh, source of, uh, of great uh, opportunity for discussion. And, and Dave, you get an honorable mention because it was, it was when I first met you in 2016, I was just in the process of writing that book. And we had a conversation about your, your work uh, in the past in, in science. And it just provided the perfect little story for the beginning of, of the chapter I wrote on, yeah. on the case for God from science. So uh, thank you for that. It was a great inspiration. Terrific. All right, we'll leave it on that note. Joe Geary with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.